Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. I am super excited to talk about this because we get to talk about neutrinos. Let's talk about neutrinos. You're listening to Linear Digressions. All right, so before we talk about neutrinos, that'll be our digression, actually, from <laughs> our main topic, which is... P-values. All right, so what are P-values? A p-value is a number that you very often get out of a data analysis that helps you understand if the effect that you're seeing, like you might be seeing some effect or some uh, signal that you think you're trying to pick up, the p-value is a number that tells you how consistent that is with just a random fluctuation of the background, basically. So you're looking for a signal, and then you've always got some kind of background noise going on, the p-value is telling you how likely it is that that background noise happened to spike or something and create a signal that you're misinterpreting as signal. Almost. So Almost. you just made a, a very slight mistake, but it's something that I'm going to be like super anal about in this podcast because that's part of the reason I want to do this podcast. Uh-huh. So the p-value is not the chance that the background fluctuate that the background fluctuated and that's what's causing your effect. Okay. It is the likelihood that you could get a background fluctuation that is that size or larger. You never actually know. I mean, statistics tells us that we we never actually know what's going on underneath the surface. We just know how consistent it is with a background fluctuation. So let's bring this to the real world and actually talk about an example. And, and this is actually where the neutrinos come in. So, sure. so let's talk about supernovas. So when a star explodes, goes supernova, what'll actually happen is all of these neutrinos will be uh, created and released from the center of the star. Mm -hmm. And they'll pass in between, a lot of them will pass in between the atoms of the star and they'll actually escape the star before the shock wave, if you will, before the um, the light, the 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 light, yeah, yeah. the actual explosion explosiony part that you see in science fiction movies and everything, right? So if you're looking at this star um, and you're observing it, you'll see a whole bunch of neutrinos come and and visit you before you actually see the light from the explosion, before the the explosion gets to the outside of the star, right? Yeah. So what happened in, uh, what year was that, 19... 1987. 1987, we detected a whole bunch of neutrinos. And by a whole bunch of neutrinos, we're talking... 20, 24. <laughs> 24 neutrinos. It's actually really hard to detect neutrinos. Like, yeah. The, the fact is, if a neutrino can pass through all of a star without running into something it can definitely pass through our detectors without running into something. Yeah. In fact, we've got billions, I think, of neutrinos going through us at every second. And the best thing about it is you have just as many neutrinos going through you at night as you do during the day, because during <laughs> the night they just come up through the floor. They're coming from the sun. They're coming, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is crazy awesome that a supernova happens and we detect, we happen to detect 24 of them. So it's very unlikely that we would detect any neutrinos at all. They just come, you know, blip. They're pretty sparse. Blip, very sparse. So in this case, a p-value, let's say the p-value was one over a billion or something, one over 10 to the ninth. Yeah, I, I actually couldn't find this number in my very quick Google searching, but yes, it's very small. Yeah, so you have a, a very, 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 very small p-value. What that p-value is saying is, in our normal day-to-day, -day, with no supernovas happening at all, mm -hmm. just background, the chance of us getting that kind of a signal from the background would be one in a billion. Almost. 
I would just tweak this a little bit mm-hmm. and say that what a p-value uh, tells you, very technically speaking, is the chance that you can get the data that you observed if the null hypothesis is true. In null this case, hypothesis. the null hypothesis is there is no supernova. Because okay. that's sort of like our, our walking around assumption. And then the supernova is going to be like your signal. That's your interesting thing that could be going on. So the p-value tells you uh, how consistent the data that you see are with the null hypothesis. Okay. And, and the fact that the p-value is super duper small here is telling you that the data that you're seeing is very inconsistent with the null hypothesis, which is strongly suggesting to you that something else is going on. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that people misconstrue p-values is by saying, all right, so there's a p-value of 1 over 20, which means I write in my journal or in my uh, news article that this drug that's being measured, let's say, has a 95% chance of being right. Classic mistake, but yes, that is the incorrect interpretation of a p-value. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a very, very, very easy mistake to make. Yeah, it's... For non-mathematical people and mathematical people. Right, and this is something that even as we've been recording this episode, I have to stop, pause, and make sure that I have the p-value perfectly right in my head. Because it's very easy to think of it in this heuristic way. Um, oh, it's just the chance that my signal is what's going on here. But that's not the technical interpretation of it, and you need to be a little bit careful. There's another way that people can mess up Mm p-values. So let's take our our p-value, let's take the example of the supernova and our made up p-value of one in a billion. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and let's assume that there's, uh, that all of the neutrinos came in over a period of 10 seconds. Okay. Okay. Just to make the math a little bit easier. Now, if I set up my neutrino experiment and I let it run for 10 billion seconds, then at some point there's a pretty good chance that a random fluctuation of the background is going to occur. I'm just going to get 24 neutrinos from random background sources, not from a supernova. And whenever that happens, I'm like, aha, something crazy is going on. But that's neglecting to, that, that doesn't take into effect the time that you've left it running for. Exactly. So if you leave it running, if you leave your counter, basically, your neutrino counter running for a really long time, of and, course you're going to get a lot of neutrinos. Yeah, you're going to have places where it does fluctuate up to that level. And this is a place that you need to look a little bit more closely when you hear about studies that have p-values of maybe 0.05, but there's a whole bunch of uh, variables that they're looking at. So let's imagine that I have a regression that I'm running. I'm trying to understand, uh, say, how much income I expect you to make. And I feed in 20 random variables. My random variables are the color of the shirt that you're wearing, like whether the Dow Jones Industrial Average went up yesterday, whether the Patriots won the Super Bowl, like random stuff. Yeah. And your p-value is 1 over 20. And my p-value is 1 over 20 because it's 0.05. 20 variables, p-value of 1 over 20. Chances are, if you look in 20 places, that something is going to fluctuate in a direction that gives you, that puts it sort of past the p-value threshold. It's not guaranteed to happen. Mm -hmm. Likewise, you could have a fluctuation where like two or three of them go higher than the p-value. But you need to basically take into account how many places you're looking for the possibility of a significant effect and count that against your p-value. And this is why statisticians are paid so well, right? <laughs> is understanding the look elsewhere effect? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's tricky. It's really tricky. You know, like you see numbers, you see probabilities and, and the chance of this and that. And it, it seems 
trivial to understand. It seems pretty easy to understand, but there's so many different places that you can get stuck or that you can, um, even worse than getting stuck, that you can misunderstand your results and think that you're understanding them. Yeah. And so yeah. like in this example, we've got two dimensions that we're messing up. We could either mess up time, we're looking over too long or too short of a period and we're skewing our results as a result. Our results as a result. That's a strange thing to say. <laughs> the other dimension, I guess, that we're talking about is, um, with the look elsewhere effect, the number of variables. So the more variables, the higher the chances that you'll get over that threshold and your statistics will say, hey, something interesting is happening when maybe it's actually not. Yeah, so the more chances you give yourself to find something, the more likely it is that you're going to find something. <laughs> That's a really great way of summing it up. Let me just end with a, a digression. This was one of my like favorite. So many digressions. In this is one of my favorite things to think about p-value. I thought about p-value so hard a couple years ago. So in particle <laughs> physics, we are extremely strict with our p-values. If you want to say you've discovered a new particle, you need to have a p-value that's like one in three million, roughly. Mm -hmm. And the reason that it has to be so small is first of all because we have huge look elsewhere effects. There are lots and lots of searches that are going on in particle physics, and so you see fluctuations all the time. Um, the other thing that happens is a p-value only accounts for the random fluctuations in your background, this sort of statistical noise. But if you don't understand your background perfectly, if there's some kind of like systematic biases, then your p-value becomes much, much harder to interpret. And so in particle physics, sometimes we're working in regimes where there's also the possibility that we don't totally understand our background. And like, let's say we're looking for supernovas and we don't realize that there's like, I don't know, a nuclear reactor down the road that's also spitting neutrinos at us and we need to, we need to, to sort of have a bigger that. fudge factor, yeah. So when we were discovering the Higgs boson a couple of years ago, the the other name that we have for our p-value, I said it was like one in three million. We call it five sigma, and this is for reasons that aren't really that interesting or germane at the moment. But so five sigma is a very high threshold of confidence. Meaning a very, very low p-value. Yes. And it was super interesting because when we were discovering the Higgs, we were actually discovering it not in a single way, a single methodology, but we were hitting at it from several different directions through different like decays of the particle. And so you would get evidence from one of the channels and it would have a p-value of, you know, whatever, like three or three sigma or something. So it's, it, it's looking good, but it's not past a discovery threshold yet. And it would say though, so normally you would say, okay, this is a three sigma local effect, but then we would we would downgrade the p-value for a global effect. So we say this is like a two sigma global. Once you take into account the look elsewhere effect, the mm. p-value is less strong. And we're trying to hit five, was we're that? We're trying to hit five, okay. yeah. And so we're combining them from like several things. So if you get like three from here and two from there, then they add up to like four together. Oof, yeah. better get your math right. Yeah, it's complicated. And so the thing that was really interesting to think about is, let's suppose that you have a particle that you're discovering at a particular uh, mass point in one of the channels, you take into account the look elsewhere effect. And so now you have a, your sort of degraded p-value at mm -hmm. 125 GeV was the, was the place where we ended up finding it. And then you start looking for corroborating evidence in another channel. So in that other channel, do you have to take into account the look elsewhere effect or not? Because on the one hand, you always have to take into account the look elsewhere effect. You could see fluctuations anywhere. On the other hand, there's only one place we're really looking anymore because we uh -huh. have evidence from the one channel, but then we have, you know, sort of this other channel as an independent uh, experiment that we're running in looking for this particle. 
And it was really interesting to to think about it because in particle physics, we don't discover particles that often. So there isn't like a super recipe way There's of no dealing script. with this. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so you have to really think very carefully about the correlations between the different channels. You have to think about how conservative you want to be. And, uh, you know, if you want to be, you know, really like going for the better, the better p-value, or if you want to be a little bit more careful, because it's really bad if you miss a particle that's there. Mm-hmm. It's even worse if you discover a particle that isn't there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so anyway, it was, it was super interesting because you have all the p-values flying around and we usually just have these like recipe it's ways usually of cut dealing and dry, with them. Yeah. yeah. But then all of a sudden, once you start discovering the particle, then you have to, then you, thinking about the look elsewhere effect becomes a very different proposition. Hmm. I don't know if that was interesting to anyone else, but it was super interesting no. to me at the time. <laughs> no, that's, that seems pretty cool to me. I mean, like it's, it's being on the fringe of the fringe of anything, you know, you're on the fringe of something and then you have to, to, I guess, figure out how the rules apply to you. Okay. So you want to get a little bit more meta with it now? Uh, I, I think so. Okay. There's another effect that I think is kind of similar to the look elsewhere effect. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's often called the, um, the desk drawer effect. The desk drawer effect. So the idea is, say I'm sitting there and I'm doing my science and I do a study. I'm trying to understand if X has an effect on Y. Let's say it's a drug trial. I think, sure. So I'm trying to understand if this, if this new drug that I'm investigating has some effect on people with some disease. Mm-hmm. And I do the study and it doesn't have an effect. Okay. I don't have a p-value that's high enough. So you put it, you put it, it in, in my your desk, desk drawer. drawer. I see. I do a different study with a slightly different drug. Also doesn't have an effect. I stick it in my desk drawer. I do this maybe 10 times and I have a big stack of papers in my desk drawers. Then I do another one and this one does get a little bit past the p-value. And I'm like, oh wow, we find a new drug. I'm sending it into science. See you later. I'm a, I'm a professor now, suckers. <laughs> And is that is that how science works? That's literally how you say it. <laughs> <laughs> and so what ends up happening is, and of course this is happening all across science. And so what you have here is kind of like a version of the look elsewhere effect because you have many different people doing studies all across science. And so there's many different opportunities for, uh, for them to find things, oh. even if things aren't always really going on. Oh, wow. So if a hundred different scientists or researchers or groups are investigating, let's say, drug A. Yeah. That's a hundred different opportunities to discover that drug A works. Right. And so, I mean, does that mess with your p-value then? or You have to be really careful of it. Yeah. And this is something actually that I think can be a big problem, especially in drug trials, because companies have a lot of incentive for the drug to pass the trial. Mm -hmm. And so what they can do is they just keep repeating the experiment over and over until you like fluctuate over that threshold and then you publish. Oh, that doesn't make me happy. Yeah. It's something you have to be really careful about. Is that, do um, meta analyses help to mitigate that where you take a whole bunch of, like, let's say you have a bunch of studies that have been done and then you do a meta study on those studies Yeah. and you say like, all right, well, this one did show some promise in this study, but there are also all these other studies that are very similar that showed no effect at all. Right. Well, I think the gold standard here really is to just repeat the experiment, right? Just once. And science should be, well, once, or I think you should repeat it in proportion to like how big of a deal you think it is. Um, I see. But yeah, but science should be repeatable. And if it's not repeatable, then it kind of isn't science. Even if something Mm. was really going on, like if we can't predictably reproduce it, then like, I don't know that we've really 
learn something scientifically. So yeah, the gold standard is to go in and, and reproduce the study. But of course, we know that there are lots of studies that don't get reproduced. They, they publish it and then it enters into the canon. There are, though, people who are really interested in this topic, and they, they do meta-level studies to try to estimate what the effect of this is over, you know, sort of all the papers that get published. So we have some idea maybe of how much we can trust the science that we're doing. Linear Digressions is a podcast about data science and machine learning, produced and recorded in the studios of Udacity, a company dedicated to education. We've got some awesome courses made by people like Katie and me in data science and other tech fields. We should also remind you that all views expressed during this program were those of the speakers and not of Udacity. This is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you don't mind, leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. Thank you for being here. And we'll see you next time.